Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We're going far beyond Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer to explore a body of Christmas carols that are darker, haunting, and even brooding in character. Those are melodies and harmonies in what we call the minor mode. Christmas in a minor mode, more serious sounding melodies, is the topic in store for us with Dr. Scott Stewart later this hour. First, Persian art treasures now in Atlanta. The area we know as Southwest Iran was once the heart of ancient Persia. In the 6th century before the Common Era, the Persians created an enormous empire reaching from the Indus Valley to northern Greece and from Central Asia to Egypt, truly a multi-ethnic empire. The High Museum of Art is featuring an exhibition of works displaying the rich artistic traditions of Iranian civilization from the 6th to the 19th century. Monica Avnisky is the curator of decorative arts and design at the High. She's with us now via Zoom. Monica, welcome to City Lights. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here with you, Lois. Thank you. Well, it was such a pleasure to read up about this exhibition, Bestowing Beauty. How did this exhibition come to the high? We have a wonderful relationship with a collector by the name of Hossein Afshar, and there curator of Islamic art um, put on this exhibition, as, as you mentioned, Bestowing Beauty, Masterpieces from Persian Lands. And our director, um, Rand Suffolk, thought it would be a great show to bring to Atlanta. And I really see it as part of our broader kind of diversity and inclusion efforts. Um, as you well know, we don't really have, um, we, not just really, we don't have an Islamic collection at the high. And so it's really nice to be able to show other forms of art making to our Atlanta audiences. Yes. and. This is an exhibition of nearly a hundred works. That's a substantial collection. Yes, and it's only a fraction of Mr. Afshar's collection, as I understand it. The works on view really range, as you have probably noticed. Um, everything from you know very small works like pen cases and pages of the Quran to extremely large scale um, textiles and kind of everything in between. So um, there are a lot of uh, works packed into these um, very small galleries. Oh, I read that. Persia was the first empire known to have acknowledged the different religions, languages, and political organizations of its subjects. Is that multifaceted aspect revealed 
in any of the art that is on display. Yes, you know, I'll just say that, you know, I think people coming into the exhibition may expect to see certain works like pages from the Quran or, or works of ceramic, because of course, these are things that the Iranians were known for, but there were some surprises. And, you know, I'll just say, you know, as one example, um, we have this kind of, we have these three paintings from the Qajar period of uh, Iranian beauties. And some of them may be scantily clad. And so this goes to show you that cultures change over time. And um, it, I think it goes back to exactly what you were saying about the Persian culture and how it has adjusted over, over the centuries. Yeah, because I believe in much of Islamic art, the human form is not depicted. So this really was either indicative of a much earlier time, pre-nation, or, as you say, just a very different set of beliefs that changed and became more conservative over the years. Right. And, and in the exhibition, is um, because the works really range and Mr. Offshar's collecting um, spans from the 6th through the 19th centuries, there are kind of various moments over time. You know, I'm, I, I'm very excited for, for Atlanta to be able to see these things. Yes, it, gorgeous works. In fact, the exhibition contains some exceptionally beautiful rugs, elaborate designs. Um, the King Umberto II Polonaise. I'm a textile fanatic, and I think this exhibition has some really, really gorgeous textiles in it. Um, and, but the one that you're speaking of, the Polonaise, yeah, it's so, I mean, the design is uh, kind of curving lines and beautifully colored threads. Um, but I, I love the kind of story behind the carpet. And, and why these why these carpets really helped uh, Iranian culture. Um, so this the Shah Abbas, who was the Safavid ruler, when these carpets began to be produced, he was the one who really understood the kind of creative potential in these new in, in, the, in these kind of carpets because he was the one who moved the, the capital to Isfahan and Isfahan is one, was one of these kind of carpet centrals. So, these carpets were really a kind of form of conspicuous consumption. Um, and that's something that I think we can all understand these days. Um, and as you look at the carpet, and you can understand that because the carpet's actually woven with gold and silver, um, in addition to these kind of bright threads. And I love this because, well, number one, you can see how, I mean, you just see it's just a luxurious object. And it would have been right at home in any Iranian royal's home. But the other super interesting part about these carpets is that they were also made for export to Europe, which is why I think they're super fascinating for contemporary audiences and why this carpet has the name Umberto II, because it was made for, well, not that it was made for this ruler, but that it ended up in Umberto II, who was part of the House of Savoy. Um, it ended up in his, um, in, in that kind of kingdom in, in Italy. And so these Polonaise carpets were widely exported in Europe. And I think that is also fascinating because they are found in these European collections more so than they're found in Iran. And I think this is kind of funny because historians believe that the Iranians would have found them a little bit too garish for... <laughs> Right. But but Europeans. Right. I mean, with their kind of golden interiors, these things would have been right at home. Oh, what do they care? They were the Beverly Hills of their day. Right. The, exactly. The, exactly. But it, it is remarkable how coveted Persian carpets were and remain. What is especially distinctive. You mentioned the gold and silver threads in the King Umberto, but even today, why are Persian rugs so expensive? I'll say for the kind of vintage and certainly these historic Persian rugs, it, it, it will amaze you when you're when when you Lois and, and and our audiences are standing in front of this carpet and not only are you marveling at the beautiful design and the fact that there are these really precious materials that are used throughout it 
But the fact that these things were made by hand on a large loom, I just, you know, I want to impress upon people, you know, particularly in an age of industrial production, how, um, how awe-inspiring it is for someone to weave something and for it to be, you know, to, for it to have a beautiful design and to have these luxurious materials. Um, and the fact that the Iranians had been, you know, were masters at this, that, that, that they were doing this for centuries and that there were several places throughout the empire that became known for this. This was really kind of one of the crafts in which they shined. Yes. The exhibition also highlights the importance of calligraphy. I read that calligraphers enjoyed high status among artists in Persian society. And I think calligraphers in Islamic art today also enjoy high status. Would you describe some examples of calligraphy we might see in this show? There's actually calligraphy almost everywhere you look, which is um, quite remarkable. Um, so not only where you would expect it, which, you know, the pages of the Quran, of course, you would expect to see calligraphy there, but also on some of the ceramic vessels, um, also on some of the manuscript illuminations. Um, there's a wonderful um, wooden cenotaph as you as you enter the exhibition, and that is full of calligraphic text. Um, so there's really calligraphy everywhere. And part of this has to do with exactly what you were saying, um, in that calligraphers were the were privileged as the kind of as the highest ranking artists, right? Not, you know, it wasn't the painters, it wasn't the, the ceramic artists, it was the calligraphers. And this really has to do with the fact that for Islamic art, the highest form of art continues to be, was and continues to be this idea of copying the word of God. And if you are able to do that, if you are an artist who does that well, that not only is that a kind of sign of piety um, on you, uh, you know, for you as, as a kind of individual, but then also for the person that has commissioned you to do that work. So it's kind of doing double duty in that regard. Oh. Bookbinding was another important part of Persian culture. In this exhibition, we see a gorgeously detailed lacquer book cover depicting the life of a Persian king. Would you talk about this work and the significance of the scene it depicts? Sure. So. This book binding, which actually has an attributable artist, um, so it's attributed to Akka Marak, um, and that is, first of all, you know, almost miraculous to have a person's name kind of attached to it. So, you know, the second miraculous thing is that, it's, is, that, is that it's made of lacquer. Lacquer is one of the most notoriously stubborn materials. And to be able to have the level of detail that this book binding has is, is quite remarkable. So again, I'm, I, I urge people to take a look at this. Um, what the bookbinding demonstrates is this kind of um, way that these two essential princely um, pleasures come together. So, um, and, and by the two princely pleasures, I mean feasting and fighting or banquets and battles as one of the sections of the exhibition explores. So the upper cover has um, this youthful prince in the center and surrounding him are various courtiers um, who are enjoying refreshments and they are kind of found in this flower-filled spring landscape. Uh, there's also a, a stream nearby and surrounding the prince are these two very elegant um, elongated cypresses that flank him. Mm. Um, and so you really, you know, you're, you're kind of in, in, in this lush idyllic scene. Um, and this time this is taking place in the autumn months. Um, and in this hunt scene, there are these various riders on horseback who are attacking animals left and right with bow and arrow. Um, and one of the courtiers has a great success, right? So his falcon was able to capture a crane in mid-flight and there are various, um, there's a person kind of pointing to it and, and making a big deal out of this. And so for, for, the, for the Persians, um, this, this notion of hunting was extremely important. Um, and I encourage, as I said, everyone to really carefully study this because it's very gorgeous work. 
and astonishing in detail. Oh, yes. As many things are in this exhibition, it is a jewel box of a show that really encourages very close looking. <laughs> Would you describe the 19th century piece titled Pear? Yes. So this is a metal pear, <laughs> which may sound rather mundane and benign, but again, it's has very intricate metalwork on the kind of body of the pear, but then also on the stem and a pear would have suggested paradise. And in the Quran, paradise is described as uh, having fruit-filled trees, a kind of lush landscape, flowering trees, again, this very idyllic kind of setting. And during the Qajar period of the 19th century, as you mentioned, steel fruit like this pear became extremely popular. Uh, for people to acquire. And I know this sounds rather strange for contemporary audiences, but the reason why these uh, objects were so popular is because pious owners could perpetually have this perfect fruit at their disposal. And again, for them, for their faith, the kind of form of the pear really encapsulated this kind of vision of paradise, right? This vision of perfection, because nothing was ever going to happen to this pair. It was an ideal form. It was the most perfect pair you've ever, ever seen. And that it was something that was eternal, right? It was not going to, it was not going to turn, well, it could tarnish because of course there was metal work, but you could, you could, you could um, fix that a little bit, uh, but it wasn't going to rot, right? It, 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 it would be there with you um, until you reached paradise. Ah, eternal nature is eternal. When I think of Persian art, I often think of the beautiful tile work and mosaic art. The piece Star Tile is a great example in this show. Monica, why were Persian artists drawn to tiles and mosaics? Yeah, so Iranians developed an expertise in ceramics and particularly in lusterware. So the star tile that you reference, which um, is actually in the first gallery, um, so it's right, um, right at the sight line when you walk in, these particular lusterware tiles would have decorated the walls of summer palaces, for example, um, or other types of palaces. Um, so they would have been used in a kind of architectural setting. Luster was, was introduced um, to Kashan, this area in Iran, um, around 1200. And it was, very, it was used extremely heavily for about 100 years in these kind of architectural commissions. And it is one of the most difficult things to make. It actually is meant to evoke metal, kind of metal work. And how they're able to do that is they incorporate this like microscopically thin layer of silver and copper. And then the tiles have to undergo two rounds of firings, right? So the kind of um, threat of breaking is even greater, you know, after after a second round, making these extremely difficult to to produce. But also, you know, as someone who you know kind of is really interested in kind of world ceramics, one of the one of the reasons why these lusterware tiles and lusterware ceramics in general are so important is because they actually influenced kind of hundreds of years of European ceramic production because they were exported and you know to various places, and then you know Europeans attempted to copy these um, these tiles. The blues in the enamel that you said had to be fired twice. Those glazes would have to have been fired twice. They're so vivid and brilliant. And I just think that's one of the most marvelous things about Persian art is the tile work. Monica, you mentioned early on how this exhibition is very much in line with the highs mission to expand and draw from more cultures. What would you like museum goers 
to have gained from seeing this show at the high? I think that I would very much like our audiences to understand that Persian civilization kind of changed over time and they can see this kind of artistic expression over many centuries um, in the few galleries um, at the high. The themes of the exhibition, and there are um, six kind of universal themes um, that, the, that, that is the organizing principle of the exhibition, that these themes transcend time and space and that they actually resonate across many different cultures. So you don't have to be Persian to understand the work that you're looking at, is really to demonstrate and preserve the beauty and significance of art and culture from the Iranian lands, to show that it is, it is worthy of preservation and of our affection today. High Museum Curator of Decorative Arts and Design, Monica Obnisky, bestowing beauty Masterpieces from Persian Lands will be on view at the High through April 18th. There is music all around us to remind us that Christmas is right around the corner. Christmas carols come in different sizes, colors, and flavors, including quite a few, surprisingly, in a minor key, which we often associate with sadness. Here to examine a few of these minor mode holiday hits is WABE music contributor, Dr. Scott Stewart. Welcome back, Scott. Thanks, Lois. Happy, happy holidays. We are moving towards a whole bunch of celebrations, and surely this is the most musical season of the year. I think that people of all different faith backgrounds enjoy the music of this season, especially a lot of the Christmas carols and hymns that we hear. And these are all in place to lift our spirits. Um, but as you say, there's a whole body of Christmas carols that are darker and more haunting, and some are even brooding. And these are melodies and tunes and harmonies to these tunes in what we call the minor mode. And as a quick Western music theory refresher, composers often build tunes out of scales like this one, the major scale. which produces major chords that sound like this. Yeah, and you can take that same major scale, the one that starts on do, re, mi, and start on the sixth note and just go up the same note scale, and it ends up producing what we call a minor scale. which can generate minor chords like this. And there are all different kinds of minor scales. It's kind of like putting different toppings on a pizza. And there are other kinds of scales too that produce other kinds of chords that don't quite fit in the categories of minor or major. and we will get to those another time. I do, while we're looking at the minor mode Christmas carols today, want to argue that one, not all Christmas carols are jolly and merry in the major mode, and two, that just because something's in minor doesn't automatically mean that it's sad or menacing, which we've been taught from film music and television music. Here's an example. That's 
Morton Gould's American Salute, his variations on When Johnny Comes Marching Home. Definitely not a sad piece. Advent, the Christmas liturgical season, is not only a time of celebration in the Christian faiths, but also a time of reflection at the end of the year when days are short and temperatures are chilly. What do you have for us in your collection of minor carols, Scott? Well, a lot of Christmas carols in the Western musical world have origins in medieval and Renaissance times with long and interesting histories as they've made their way through different cultures and language changes and musical traditions. Person Nantodier is one such song that was published back in 1582 in the Finnish songbook called Pie Cantiones. The text is based on a St. Nicholas Day poem from the 12th century. It's in Latin, and the tune is in the Dorian mode, which is one of the forms of the minor scale. Sonant Hodier, in that setting by John Rotter and the Cambridge Choir. The text urges us to sing aloud on this day. Yeah, and this is a great example of a piece in the minor mode that still manages to have this really upbeat energy and a kind of celebratory optimism. Back in the day, and I mean way back in the day in the Renaissance, instrumental consorts used vocal music as one of their primary sources for material. So here's a small ensemble version of Person and Hodier with a different feel, but still in the minor mode. Onomatopoeia is the technique of forming words to sound like the things they are describing. Poets might say boing or splat to illustrate those ideas. Composers have borrowed this technique for centuries, and we have a handful of carols that thrive on onomatopoetic sounds. This adds so much extra fun in music. I think that started when we were little kids, but certainly adults enjoy it. And we end up imitating all kinds of things. In this case, musical instrument sounds with our voices and sometimes even animal sounds. The first of these tunes is Fum, Fum, Fum. It's a classic Renaissance carol from Catalonia in Spain. Fum means smoke in Spanish. So it might refer to smoke rising from a chimney during the winter. There's also some suggestions from the New Oxford Book of Carols that it might be an onomatopoeia for the sound of a drum or the strumming of a guitar, and some have even suggested that it might be the creak of a rocking cradle. Boom, 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 boom. 
the late music director of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra for 21 years, and master choral conductor Robert Shaw led the Robert Shaw Singers in that recording of Fum, Fum, Fum. Riu, riu, tiula, guarda ribera, Dio sguardo del lobo de nuestra cordera, Dio sguardo del lobo de nuestra cordera. Riu, riu, tiula, guarda ribera, Dio sguardo del lobo de nuestra cordera, Dio sguardo del lobo de Rabbioso la quiso morder, mas Dios poderoso la supo defender. Quiso dejar que no pudiese pecar, ni a uno rigirar esta virgen no tuviera. Río, río, chino, la guarda ribera, Dios guardó el lobo, el lobo de nuestra cordera. Dios guardó el lobo, el lobo de nuestra cordera. A fiercely energetic Spanish villancico, Riu Riu Chiu. The villancico was an early form of the Christmas carol that derived from super rhythmic dance music. It seems to have sprouted up from several different sources in late 16th century Spain. The opening of the poem is meant to resemble the song of the nightingale, introducing a metaphorical text that God has kept the black wolf, the devil, from our you, the Virgin Mary. We've had strumming guitars and singing nightingales, so it's time for some drums. Patapan commands Willie to bring his little drum and Robin to take his flute and come, so we hear the tabor the predecessor to the snare drum, and the three-hole pipe being invoked. Yeah, Patapan is a fantastic French Christmas carol composed by Bernard de la Manois, first published around 1720. Manois was the carol laureate, and I think we should all have carol laureates in our (laughs) countries. Why don't we have one of those? Um, He was in Burgundy, which was apparently a hotbed of carol development. The lyrics of Patapan center around Christ's birth from the perspective of the shepherds abiding their flock, playing music in the fields. with metaphor once again. Patapan with flutist James Galway, the Royal Philharmonic, and the BBC singers. In that version, they provided the pipe and drums for us. And here's the Robert Shaw Chorale with singers providing the instrumental sounds.
Pata Pata Pan, the sound of the drums, and Tourlerulu, the sound of the flute. It's clearly a predecessor of the little drummer boy that would come a few years later. We're still in the minor mode, but because of tempo and vigorous rhythms and articulate singing and playing, we don't perceive it as sad or any kind of downer. The Haunting Coventry Carol, also known as Luli Lulay. John Aldous led the London Symphony Orchestra and Chorus. This is maybe a more appropriate minor mode setting, one of the darker side stories of Christmas. This tune originated in Coventry, England, which is known for the mystery play, The Pageant of the Shearmen and the Tailors. This chronicled the story of King Herod's slaughter of all males under the age of two once he had heard of the birth of Jesus. It's a very sad subject matter, a lullaby that is sung by mothers to the children who would be killed. Scott, we've heard some music from Spain. Here's another poignant carol from the Basque region in the late 1800s. This is Gabriel's message. This is also in a minor mode. It's a very lilting carol, which takes its text from the book of Luke in the Christian Bible. It tells of the angel Gabriel's annunciation to the Virgin Mary that she will bear the Christ child. It also takes texts from Mary's Magnificat, which has been set by so many composers. Gabriel's message. There are so many recordings of this carol, including a really nice one by Sting on his If on a Winter's Night album. Hmm. A piece so cheery and ringing, we forget it's in the minor mode at all. That's the Carol of the Bells, also known as the Ukrainian Bell Carol. This is another carol that has been recorded by scores of artists in so many different genres. Definitely check out the ultra-hip versions by the acapella groups Straight No Chaser from Indiana University and the Pentatonics, who are awesome. And you'll also find this across the recording history years of uh, Ray Conniff singers and even the New York Philharmonic with Leonard Bernstein. Scott, apparently the original text of this tune had nothing to do with Christmas. Absolutely nothing. It's a Ukrainian song called Shedrik, composed in 1916 by composer Mykola Leontovich. Essentially, it says the swallow is a herald of spring coming. So it's a whole bunch of well wishes for the upcoming season. Now, I guess you could view the swallow being a herald of spring as a metaphor for Christmas. 
But American choir director Peter Wilhowski wrote English lyrics to this piece and premiered it in Carnegie Hall in 1921. He also actually took credit for publishing it, even though it had already been published several years before, but that might be a story for another episode. <laughs> Today, we know this as the Carol of the Bells. Well, Merry, Merry, Merry Christmas and happiest of holidays to everyone. I think it was Professor Slughorn in the Harry Potter series that said, there could be no light without the dark. And may this season be filled with light and love and music, both in major and minor modes. Scott Stewart, thank you for all of the light that you bring brightening city lights with your marvelous conversations about music. Happy holidays. Same to you. Dr. Scott Stewart is WABE music contributor and host of Strike Up the Band. He's on the music faculty at the Westminster Schools and conductor of the Atlanta Youth Wind Symphony. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. With Christmas just four days away, it seems a good time to revisit my conversation with the baking expert and cookbook author, Anne Byrne. Earlier this year, we spoke about different recipes one could try at home during the pandemic. As so many of us will be home for the holidays, why not try baking or cooking something new? Here, Anne explains how baking was an important outlet during other historic crises. Baking really was important and it sustained people and it did embrace you know all of the the family recipes held people together the the recipes that were attached to holidays in spite of war times or depression you still wanted the the sugar cookies or something to be on the table i think that the it, the baking was symbolic of, of a regular life and so it was really important to keep specific recipes you know on hand. And in other aspects, baking was just what you did. It was like putting in a garden. It was it was feeding your family. And and also in, in the war years, World War One and Two, what you baked with was greatly rationed. That's how it used to be. And people made an awful lot of substitutions. And you know, you can go back through old cookbooks of the thirties and forties and it's mock this and mock that because it didn't <laughs> 
They didn't have apples, so you put uh, Ritz crackers in there instead. Can you think of any other examples of substitutions or improvisatory approaches to recipes during the war or the Depression? On and on. I mean, I think not only for key ingredients like apples, but something like butter and milk were, uh, you know, and th those cakes, it was called war cake, really. And no eggs. If you didn't live on a farm, you didn't have eggs. So if you want to bake a cake, that gets pretty, pretty difficult. And so there was the cake. It's called the war cake. It's called the depression cake. It, in, in my American cake book, I call it cowboy cake because you can make it in a Dutch oven, but it really is just stewed down fruit and vegetable shortening and some flour to hold it together and a ton of spices. And it's delicious, <laughs> you know, and, and it great. It really resembles uh, sticky toffee pudding for people who have lived in uh, England and Australia and places where sticky toffee pudding is sort of the national dessert. And you have to think that that must have they must have come by that dessert honestly because England is a country that was well accustomed to war rationing when it came to baking. And so I, I, I think they must be very proud that that is the dish that, that, that belongs to them. And it's a delicious cake and it's a pudding. And when served warm with a butterscotch sauce, I mean, you can't resist it. It's delicious. So there are recipes that have survived these times of crisis. What is the war cake? Well, that is that cake. It's stewed fruit and vegetable shortening, no eggs, no fancy butter in it whatsoever, never any chocolate. I mean, it's what people had on their cupboard. And I think it's a catch-all phrase too, Lois, because I mean, if you look through a lot of cookbooks, any cake that didn't have eggs in it or didn't have butter and it was called a war cake. MFK um, Fisher, who's a wonderful writer, and in one of her books, How to Cook a Wolf, she really talks about the wolf at the door and how to keep the wolf away and how, how you can eat well, you know, on really meager foods. That's a wonderful reading recommendation, not only for her thoughts on food, but her descriptions of France, of scenery, just her writing style. I'm going to go read some of that. I just love her, you know, and I think that it reminds us all that as aggravating as this time is right now, and it's such an inconvenience and it's heartbreaking, that possibly there's something we're going to get out of it. And, and if it's something that comes out of the kitchen, you know, maybe we did learn, we took the time to learn how to make a loaf of bread, or we went through an old recipe box, you know, that belonged to our mother. And, and, and we just slowed down long enough. We'll realize that a lot of other folks have been through terrible times and have fed families. And when you come out of it, there is, this, there is such a greater appreciation for food. And I remember my mother always talking about why we got oranges in our stockings at Christmas. And it was because she was born in 25 and she was the last of five girls in the family. And she lived through the depression and she said, you know, oranges were really precious. Mm -hmm. And so that was it in the stocking, maybe a bar of chocolate and an orange. And she recalls the flavor of, you know, tasting an orange when you hadn't had one. Maybe that's good for us. Yes, and certainly Proust comes back to mind with associating that flavor with a precious moment, such as Christmas or just being home together at times like this. What are some of your recipe recommendations for baking during this difficult time? Well, um. I'd say if you've got American cake at home, go to the chapter on hard times and just read about those cakes. The 1917 applesauce cake, that was a World War One cake. Using applesauce really as for, for some of the fat in the recipe and also to keep the cake moist. I love that. Um, if you've got American cookie, oh boy. So many of those old um, German recipes you know the cookies are so easy to make with whatever you have because they take substitutions 
so nicely. I mean, you, you can make cookies with butter or vegetable shortening. You, snickerdoodle cookies are probably the cheapest thing to make, and you've got everything in the house. Um, I, I love cookies because they, they just, you know, they're not picky. Like a baby. <laughs> They're not picky, you know, and then you can stick them in the freezer and then you've got them. So if they last long enough. (laughs) Yeah. Or you can leave them on the porch, on your porch in little sacks and then tell your friends to drive by and pick up a sack. Cookies at a safe distance. (laughs) Exactly. I think really it, it boils down to what you said first, Lois. It's like with what ingredients we have on hand, because this is a real test for people's creativity and adaptability to be able to cook with whatever is in the freezer, in the pantry, or whatever they can find in the store. Cookbook author and baking expert, Chef Ann Byrne. She's the author of several cookbooks, including Skillet Love, The Cake Mix Doctor, American Cookie, and American cake. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., our guest will be former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick. We'll hear about his new podcast series, Being American. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter. I'm 18 followers away from the next round number. Please join my Twitter family at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also find our archived stories at wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.